Today's show is sponsored by Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty, and everything else you are investing into the software solution you're building. Pricing Wire has helped more than a thousand software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what you're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, Pricing Wire delivers easy to understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or costly regrets, and prevent missing time-sensitive revenue opportunities, PricingWire can help. Just go to PricingWire.com and book a strategy session today. PricingWire helps technology innovators like you design the right offerings, better quantify and message value, set and change prices, select the right pricing metrics, or even decide if usage-based pricing is best for you. Why wouldn't you want to achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence? Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. It is good to be back with you this week. We are now kind of into the full swing of September, into the fall, at least for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, you know, kids are going back to school. Traffic's a little bit hectic uh, with uh, school buses and all that sort of stuff, but hope everybody's doing well. Um, it is good to be back with you. Uh, real quick, we're going to do a little bit of Cloud News of the Week, and then I want to hit on a couple more important topics than that. Uh, I want to congratulate Platform 9, uh, Cloudcast alumni, uh, just took a, another round of funding, uh, $25 million to, to continue to do uh, managed open stack and uh, Kubernetes offering. So uh, continuing to see, especially around Kubernetes, especially to see more and more companies that are interested in managed Kubernetes offering. So congratulations to the Platform 9 team. Um, you know, that's kind of all the cloud news I want to hit on this week, uh, you know, at least in terms of technology clouds. Um, if you've been watching the weather at all, I know a lot of our listeners are in North America and, and some in Europe and all. You've probably been paying attention to the news. Uh, just a massive, massive, uh, you know, we've hit hurricane season, massive, massive storm that is uh, – really doing incredible damage to uh, the Bahamas, a lot of the Caribbean. Uh, I know some many of you will, will go on vacation there. There's going to be massive, massive amounts of damage. This Hurricane Dorian is unfortunately the largest storm on record, the largest storm to ever reach uh, landfall around 180 miles an hour, Category 5 hurricane. So I'm going to ask that if you uh, are able, um, that instead of maybe spending a uh, few bucks on a cup of coffee this week or something else, maybe you make a donation to the Red Cross or one of the other relief organizations um, that area is going to have just massive amounts of damage. And if there's a way that the uh, Cloudcast community can help out with that, it would be great. Um, if you're able to reach into your pocket and help out, um, you know, it's going to do a lot of damage here in the States. We'll be able to take care of that. But if you're able to, to make a donation, Red Cross is a great organization for that. I know there's many others that, that help as well. So if you're able to do that, that would be very, very kind of you. A um, couple other just quick notes and we'll wrap up Cloud News of the Week. Um, First one, if you are in Europe and you are thinking about going to Velocity Conference uh, in Berlin, which is November 4th through 7th, if you use the cloud, uh, the code cloud, C-L-O-U-D, cloud, uh, you'll get 20% off your pass. So uh, we're, we're always happy to partner with the O'Reilly folks on that. And if you enjoyed our show from a couple of weeks ago from the folks at Learn On Demand Systems, they want you to try out an IT Pro Challenge for free by visiting learnondemandsystems.com slash cloudcast, and you can try out one of the free IT Pro Challenges. Challenges. I know there's been a lot of interest in that show and a lot of uh, really positive feedback about uh, that offering. So I uh, want to give you a couple of ways to save some money, uh, go learn some new things, whether you're in person in Berlin or, 
or online with uh, with Learn on Demand systems and IT Pro challenges. So with that, we are going to wrap up Cloud News of the Week. Again, if you're able to make a donation, be generous. Uh, I know the folks um, that are going to be affected by this hurricane would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So with that, we're going to get to our interview. Very, very interesting show talking about kind of technical debt and the ability to manage uh, when, when systems fail and how do we better manage those systems. So let's get to the interview. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls and load balancers, a new managed Kubernetes service, and much more. From predictable pricing to flexible configurations to world-class customer support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow your business. Plus, DigitalOcean's community provides over 2,000 tutorials to help you stay up to date on the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. So to get started on DigitalOcean for free, with a free $50 credit, go to do.co slash cloudcast. That's do.co slash cloudcast. And we're back. You know, folks, uh, obviously we we talk a lot about technologies on the show. We talk a lot about new technologies and uh, people love that. But the byproduct of new technologies is it means things are going to change around you, whether that means you're learning new technologies or the people that you're working with, the process and the skills that people have may have to evolve and so forth. And there's always this trade-off that people have between do we adopt new things because they're good for the business? Do we not adopt them because they seem hard? And you know, we always try and go out and try and find some folks that, that live and breathe this and that are around it quite a bit to help us have some perspective on how do we deal with change? Um, how do we deal with you know, the, the business demand to go faster and the technology challenge of kind of trying to learn and what that means in terms of our thing? So very, very excited today to have Heidi Waterhouse with us, who is a developer advocate with LaunchDarkly. Heidi, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. So before we jump into kind of talking about this, um, give us a little bit of your background. You, uh, you know, as I look at some of the things you do, you get a chance to speak quite a bit um, at events, at conferences. It means you get to talk to people. And to a certain extent, there, there's a theme sometimes about talking about things are broken and how do we fix them. And so give us a little bit about your background just to kind of set the context of why you're interested in, in the things that you talk about in this, in this context. So it's a useful thing to know about me that I started in technology before Y2K. Uh, so if that's your formative technology experience, you're always sort of painfully aware of how taped together everything is. I spent 20 years as a technical writer, which is super exciting because that means that you get to learn all the nitty gritty of the how and the why of software. And then I transitioned into developer advocacy because I was running out of exciting new things to document. And I decided to, to take the show on the road and talk to people about the things that I've learned over time about how systems work and how we can think about things fitting together, like independently of a specific company or a technology. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I, I've always found that um, the folks that do technical writing are, are typically very connected to the product teams that are building whatever they're building. And they have a very acute eye for trying to put themselves in the in the shoes of the end customer, the, the user of the product, the the architect of the product. And so they do an incredible job of sort of, uh, I don't want to say calling BS on stuff, but they kind of go, what, what the way you explain it to me doesn't make sense. Or we together have to figure out a way to make this so that the person without deep, deep technical knowledge can make sense of this. And so uh, your perspective, I think, is going to be very, very interesting in this uh, about the things we're talking about. Um, 
before we before we sort of dive into kind of the deeper topics, um, give us a sense of uh, you know your your day job is it is it launch darkly. Um, Give us a sense of what Launch Darkly does, just so people kind of understand the, the space they're in around feature flags and and trying to help do um, you know continuous deployments and so forth. Right. So my off the cuff response is we do feature flags as a service because feature flags are a really powerful tool that lets you control how software behaves after it's been deployed. And continuous deployment is a really powerful tool that lets you understand that software is living and breathing and active at all all points. And the thing that has to happen for continuous deployment to be a reality is you have to be able to deploy, but not show people, broken code. Because if you can't push broken code to production, you're doing very fast iterative deployment. And so the idea of continuous deployment relies on being able to gate off some parts of your code so that it's not visible to everyone. Right, right. And I, and I think that's something that people are beginning to, to understand more and more. Um, they're having to understand it more and more because we, we have these applications that are really composites of a lot of things. The, the experience is, is the thing that we think of as the application, but the, the experience is really made up of a lot of different things. And, and like you said, you've got to be able to to put broken code out there, you've got to be able to put new code. You've got to be able to experiment with a small number of people and see if it does what it's supposed to do. And so it's a it's a fascinating area um, in general. <clears throat> let's let's talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you've been talking about lately, uh, which I, I thought were very very interesting. Which is um, it's kind of around this idea that everything is a little bit broken, not massively broken, but it's always a little bit broken. Um, and kind of what that means, I. We talk to, we get a chance to talk to a lot of different people sometimes, kind of what I would call, you know, end users or customers or, or the businesses uh, using technology and and then implementers. Um, and there's so much that are coming at people these days, whether it's, you know, microservices and distributed stuff and, and, and using the cloud as opposed to physical data centers. And it's it's creating this big shift in people having to go from kind of like you said, earlier thinking, you know, kind of maybe pre Y2K days or focus on uptime being the, the most important thing to, you know, this environment where things are constantly changing. Um, kind of give us a starting point. How do you start framing that conversation for people so that maybe the benefits of some of these new technologies don't seem so, I don't know, just impossibly difficult to make work or make them fit in their environment. Like, So one of the things that I tell people that always terrorizes them is that the plane that you use to get here has an error budget. There are always things wrong with the plane that you're on, yeah, yeah. but not in core systems. And if the error budget exceeds a certain threshold, even if it's just like the latch on a luggage bin is broken, then you know something about the overall fitness of the plane and you pull it from service. Another example, uh, we just finished watching the Tour de France. It's not like after three weeks of cycling, you know, 100 kilometers, 200 kilometers a day, these people feel good. Like none of them feel feel awesome. They have sores, they have aches, and yet they're still operating at this elite level because they have trained to, to be able to do that past a capacity, like... They, they are at a certain level and they have an error budget in there where like, oh yeah, I can keep writing with a broken rib. Right, right. Yeah, and I think, I think people, I don't want to say they forget that. I think in some cases they've, they've either never experienced it or 
the people around them have built, uh, you know, metrics or, or key performance indicators that kind of assumes perfectness. And I think that's a hard thing sometimes to, to kind of overcome if, like you said, you you haven't lived around this world where you're like, yeah, we, we build in the fact that stuff's kind of broken, at least in different places, and we figure out how to manage around that. I really think this is something interesting that the SRE community has done for us, site reliability engineers, where they talk about error budgets and they talk about uh, performance contracts, where they're like, we're going to give you this many nines. And the important thing to me when we think about this is that we remember what Charity Majors said, which is nines don't matter if your users aren't happy. Right. Nines are an indicator. You know, reliability is an indicator of system stability and therefore user happiness and therefore our ability to make money. But if we hang up on the metric, then we're not actually doing the work to make sure that the people are happy. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, as, as we've learned over time, you know, any metric can be gamed, any, anything that, you know, has a, a potential, you know, benefit, well, not benefit, but like a, somebody is measured against it, people will find ways to sort of game the system and so forth. So yeah, like you said, just, just relying entirely on that number and building against that number doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're building to the thing that, that drives satisfaction, that drives profitability, that drives, you know, whatever the bigger picture is. Right. Um, it- And the cool idea to me about error budgets is not only that you have this room to to have problems and to have intersections and things that you didn't expect, but you're expected to use them. Like if you get through and you haven't used any of your error budget, then you're not experimenting enough. You're not pushing forward. You're at a stable state. Uh, And so a, a good SRE manager will say, why haven't we used any of our budget? Right. Right. I want to I'm going to dive into that a little bit more uh, in, in a little bit later in the show. Um, let's start a little bit earlier. So, um, you know, on, on one hand, if, you know, if we were to draw this out as a spectrum, sort of you've got certain mindsets within companies that are that are very five nines kind of or however many nines centric. And they have a tendency to want to say, uh, you know, if if we're ever down, um, you know, I can, I can measure lost revenue, lost opportunity against that thing. So we basically have to plan for never down, which if you don't live in the, if you don't live in those environments, maybe that seems like a real expectation. If you do live in them, you know, it's kind of unexpected. And then on the other hand, you know, we see these fantastically successful companies, um, albeit, you know, maybe it's an Etsy or a Netflix or whatever talking about hundreds of deployments a day to 10 deployments a day, whatever it is, you know, the, the kind of the, the world of Gene Kim number of deployments. How have you found in talking to people that the folks that are pushing for more and more deployments, because again, they want to experiment, they want to validate things. How do they begin to kind of educate the people that are from the five nines world that don't really understand that the more small experiments you're doing, the better chance that you don't have of catastrophic failure? Nicole Forsgren and Gene Kim and Jez Humble wrote a book called Accelerate that that has some really great arguments in it about why going faster is safer. And the thing I say is when you're a kid and you're learning to ride a bike and your parent says, go faster and you won't fall down. And you're like, that makes zero sense to me. The pavement is very hard. I'm not going fast. What they know and you don't is that speed is in fact safety. And so frequently when I bring out these super like folksy, almost everyone has had these experiences where safer is faster. um, It kind of changes people thinking, people's thinking, because 
if you do it as a as a purely technology thing, they learned this technology this way and and they're not gonna abandon it easily. When you take technology out of that realm and put it into a different context, it gives them an opportunity to rethink why it is that they're valuing stability. And I think another useful thing to say is it's a, it, everything's a little bit broken. Like we could be operating in a depreciated, a suboptimal state and still making money. Like maybe we're not serving all of the ads on our page, but we're still serving news. Like we're, we're still providing value. Right. And so the emergency is less emergent because you're only kind of broken. You've isolated your parts enough so that you're not stuck with all or nothing. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I, I think what you highlight and you've come back to this a couple of times is, um, is, is figuring out how to help people understand how to explain that. And, and, and like you said, sometimes you, you have to, even though you're, you're dealing with a technical context, you've got to be able to explain it in some other frame of reference for somebody. So, you know, like you said, if, if the, the person that you're trying to convince is a cyclist, you know, you're explaining to them that, you know, the second half of their ride, you know, they're, they're in pain, they're struggling, they're, they're not in as good a shape as they were when they started, but at the same time, they're still completing the task. They're still participating. They're still doing their thing. Um, you know, and that, and, and you can, you can do that. But I think what you highlight is really important, which is you've got to realize that, um, you know, unless people really have the exact same experiences that you have, that you have to figure out, some of their experiences and, and try and put it into, you know, into their kind of their view of the world, if you will. And the, the bike riding example is really good. One of the funny things is that one doesn't work in Europe because they don't train their kids on pedal bikes. They train, train them on coaster bikes. And so the kids manage steering and balance before they manage pedaling. Yeah. And, and so it doesn't make any sense to Europeans. Right. Right. Yeah. And that is one of the, that is one of the challenges is you get these teams that are, distributed teams and mixed teams. And you've, you've also then got to realize, you know, what, what are some of those cultural things that you take for granted that just don't exist where they are? Um, so yeah, no, I think that's, that's really good. Um, you have an interesting, uh, sort of line and I'll read this. This is from one of your talks. Um, it it says, you know, by, by adding error budgets, layered access and, and other accommodations for failure, um, we're able to design our, our systems for function over pure, you know, kind of form or purity. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those elements are? You know, we talked a little about error budgets, um, you know, layered access. Like, what are some of these concepts that you're finding people are able to do to, you know, keep the the amount of brokenness, uh, whether it's contained or whether it's, uh, you know, better ways to sort of manage it so that, like you said, we're trying to to deal with function over purity. One of the things that we found really useful for people is a pattern that we call the circuit breaker. So if you're consuming data from an API and you, you're monitoring the amount of data that's coming in, you're like, okay, the flow looks about right, you know, within, you know, these parameters. And suddenly you see like a hundred X spike, you have a pretty good guess that something has gone weird. Either they've changed a setting or you've changed a setting or you're getting DDoS to somehow there's something wrong and you don't want to consume that possibly bad data and put it into your database. So your monitoring system trips a flag which turns off the inbound API 
until you have time to go figure it out. So there's not like millions of, of bad messages pouring into your system. You've turned it off and, and you can troubleshoot it. Now that's a little broken because now you're not getting those messages anymore, but it's probably better than overwhelming your own system with a flood of bad messages. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great example. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's a little bit, like you said, it's, it's the example of a, a portion of your, of your site or your app could be down. Um, but it doesn't impact the, the thing that you immediately have, right? It's, it's sort of the example that people use about like, like amazon.com. Amazon.com is never down, but you may not necessarily get the recommendations. You may not necessarily get the, you know, people like you also, uh, bought this, but you know, they make sure that the site's there, the front page is there, maybe the shopping cart is always there, and the other pieces become, um, you know, layered or or chunks of that experience, but not the entire experience. Right. And another thing that we promote really hard is what we call testing in production. And this makes all of the old school sysadmins just flinch um, because they're like, no, production is sacred. But here's the thing. No staging environment these days can be equivalent to production because it's so expensive and because right. our production services are so interconnected and we're depending on AWS and we're depending on Okta. And so there's all these things that are very hard to replicate in staging. You should still be doing integration testing. I'm not saying that. But there needs to be a way you can put something on production and then the layered access is we're going to turn it on in production, but only for the team that built it or only for internal beta users, or maybe only for this one customer who is, you know, desperately needs this feature, but we're not sure that it's ready for full release. So you give people an option to configure what it's like to have production in a bunch of different states simultaneously. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you, you point out a really important thing, which is, you know, especially as we're dealing with systems that have to be available 24/7 365, you know, globally available. We're never necessarily sure when they have to scale or something's going to get really uh, really popular. It it does make it nearly impossible to somehow replicate it in a, you know, in a dev and test environment or a QA environment. Um, you know, it, it sort of is one of those things that again, you you kind of have to go to an analogy. You take, I don't know, take a, you know, professional football team preparing for the Super Bowl. You can't prepare for the actual Super Bowl, but maybe you can prepare for the, the noise by pumping in noise into where you practice, or you can, you can uh, you know, work on the last two minutes of the game with high pressure by sort of creating that in a certain way, but you can't replicate the entire thing. And you have to figure out how do you say, I can maybe replicate aspects of it or create scenarios in which we have to react, but you also have to have that mindset of, um, we can't believe that we're going to to find everything exactly the way the world will be. But if we do it in parts and we design our system in parts, we have a better chance of success. Exactly. And one of the things that I think is a great example of that is we do this all the time when we have car maintenance, where we're like, oh, I can change my own oil or I can put oil in, but I can't change oil. Right. And so we have these like specialty roles where it unlocks for some people and not for others. The other problem is production is so weird. Like user data is so weird that we do not correctly anticipate it. So you could either be using real data, which is a PII nightmare, or you can accept that you're going to catch the fact that in some languages, P 
people only have one or two letter last names or don't have last names or have three last names. Um, like the number of ways Americans are terrible about recognizing international names is actually a whole talk. Right, right. International names, international phone numbers, addresses, all sorts of stuff. Yes. I, I tell people that uh, what they have to do is build their system so that they are ready for the first children named in emojis. <laughs> because if you are ready for that, you are ready for now. Yeah. And emoji named children are coming. Yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. You, you know, it, it, we've already seen it with Prince and then it will just be, you know, more right. and more and more. So, yeah, no, it's uh, the preparing for the unknown is is so hard to do because, again, you you just can't sometimes get your mind to a, a place where how in the world would that ever happen or that series of events would ever happen? Um, and again, I think you're, you know, it it points out the fact that, you know, if you think you are going to deploy your application in a very controlled environment, maybe that sort of works. You're only going to be in the United States. But as soon as you want to get outside of that sort of known known, you've got to start thinking uh, I've got to break this thing into parts because I can't have the entire thing breaking because I didn't didn't know something. I didn't get to something. Right. And we can test for known unknowns. Like I can say, hey, you need to check your names. Um, but we might not be testing for things that we can't anticipate. Like unknown unknowns are the hardest part and why we have to test in production. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That was years and years ago. That was one of the, the, the great kind of aha moments for me was I, I got to talking to one of the developers, we were developing protocols and so forth. And I was like, well, why does it take you so long to do things? We know what the thing's supposed to look like. There's a spec for it. And, you know, are, are you spending all of your time around the idea that people are going to do things wrong? You should. And he goes, yeah, that's exactly what I do. I, I spend 80% <laughs> of my, I spend 80% of my time having to come up with failure scenarios and how to, you know, deal with them in some graceful or ungraceful way. And otherwise, yeah, writing the code would be super easy if it, if the, you know, if the world was always straight roads and everybody went the same speed. Right. And I think that's one of the interesting things about APIs. Uh, and I'll be interested to see how it works with GraphQL, especially is we can say, I don't care how you work as long as you return this thing. Like what's under that abstraction layer of the API, not my problem. I'm just consuming your data. And right. so as long as we can trust that contract, then all we have to do is test that contract. And somebody else is in charge of testing that their API is delivering the right thing. Right. And so not only at a company level, but in this, this trust web of what I call the yours, mine, and ours ecosystem, like with all of the microservices and services and software as a service, within that trust web, we have this, this promise theory that we're counting on people to deliver what they promised contractually. Right, right, right. And uh, and you're never exactly sure, you know, wh wh where is the technical boundary? Where is the legal boundary? Wh where is the, well, we, we sort of thought we meant that type of boundary as well. Right. But it does mean that you can have a less, uh, less chaotic expectation right. because you're not the one who has to code it. Either it meets your standards for consumption or it does not meet your standards for consumption. Right. So it, there's two states. Yeah. No, and that is the one nice piece of it. It's sort of like the service tells you what you can have or what you can't have. And you, once you take negotiation out of it, it does, it does, you may not always like the outcomes, but it does make things much more expedient in terms of, of like you said, getting to either, you know, yes or no. Right. 
which um, is why I think GraphQL will be super interesting because it is a negotiation mm-hmm. to say, so I say that APIs, like REST APIs are like a restaurant menu. You walk in and you look at it and you say, oh, of these things, this is the one I want. And GraphQL is more like one of the hipster bartenders in the mission where you walk <laughs> in and he says, what do you feel like today? And you're right. like, I don't know, something fruity. He's like, do you like mango? Right. Sure, I like mango. Yeah. And then you end up with a drink that's great, but it was not predictable. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I'm going to ask you one last question, and, and I, I sort of I sort of hit on it at the beginning, um, and again I'm going to come back to it um, just as we've talked about this. You know, when you when you get a chance to speak to a lot of people, the the, the great thing about that is, depending on what part of the world you're in or you know what you were talking about you get feedback from people. Um, and, and to a certain extent, people are trying to learn from you. They're trying to take something with it. Do you find that, you know, you're, you're trying to teach people good practices at the same time, you're having to sometimes give them examples that are, you know, here's a disaster. This, here's an example of a card wreck, you know, kind of thing. Do you find that people resonate more to sort of the, the best practices and they can nod their head because, you know, they're engineers and they're kind of structured in the way they think? Or do you find that they're like, you know what, I, I love that you gave me a real life car wreck because I can take that back to people and that'll be memorable. Like, have you found any patterns in terms of, you know, which which kind of storytelling or things like, you know, examples tend to resonate more with people or, or they come back to you and they'd say this worked better in me trying to change something at, at my job? Oh, everybody loves a good disaster talk. I, I will preferentially attend disaster talks um, because, again, it's so much easier to relate your concrete problem to something not abstract, but differently concrete. Uh, there's this really great book by Scott McCloud called Drawing Comics, where he points out that psychologically, we identify more with a stick figure than we do with a realistic cartoon figure. And that's because we can project ourselves onto the stick figure. And if the cartoon doesn't look like us, then we we don't identify ourselves with it. And I think that's a lot of why disaster talks and, and chaos talks are so exciting, because we can look at them and say, oh, I see the general outline of this system and how it failed, rather than, I don't know, Facebook gave a talk, but we're still like in a soap rest world and it doesn't do us any good. Yeah, no, and I, I, I think, I think there's just a certain human nature that that's sort of built into our DNA, which is, you know, somewhere between kind of apathy and you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I, I always come back to people sometimes that go, well, the the best way to do this is to start with the low hanging fruit and kind of do. And I'm like, you know, that's that's great, and that works really well if you're kind of just updating your resume and you want to put some things on there, but. If you want to get bigger buy-in, like you, you need to go look for car wrecks. You need to look for burning platforms because those are the things that sometimes the people above you are like, if we don't fix this, I lose my job or, you know, we go out of business or so like, you can't be afraid of, of being like, I'm going to go near that third rail because that's the ones where people will buy into your crazy idea or they will throw a lot of money at it to go fix it. Sometimes the, the low hanging fruit is... You know, it's great for resume-driven development, but it doesn't necessarily get more than one person interested in what you think is a problem. The third rail is where the power is. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it, it's super interesting because 
there are some times when you are standing there and you're like, this is on fire. Okay, it's not currently on fire, but it's a smoldering heap of greasy rags and we will have a fire if you don't do something. And in that case, I think it's super useful to pull from somebody else's very similar disaster and say, hey, we know that Y2K was an enormous upgrade problem. I realize it seems like a long way away, but 2038 is coming. And are we thinking about that? Yeah. And you, and you have to convince people that, you know, if they, if they went through a lot of, uh, you know, Y2K preparing and they didn't, it didn't fail that, you know, this isn't just another set of like crying wolf and so forth. So there is, you know, as, as much as, uh, as much as technologists always love to talk bits and bytes, it's like, you know, go, go back and get that uh, undergrad uh, minor in psychology and uh, a little bit of marketing and other stuff. Cause you're going to have to convince somebody of something at some point. Uh, it's whether you call it storytelling or you call it whatever. So, well, very cool. Thank you so much. This has been uh, a fun discussion. I, I, um, you know, like you said, I enjoy talking to people who, while they know the technology really well, also understand the human aspect of it. And you, you shared with us a lot about, you know, how do we, how do we overcome some of these fears, which again, are really, sometimes we do better when we're going faster. Yeah. And good luck to everybody out there. Yeah. Um, hi, real quick. Um, you know, if folks, you're going to be giving a keynote and speaking like at uh, Velocity in Berlin later in the year, but you speak all over the place. If people kind of want to pick your brain, reach out to you, what might be a good place for them to either you know, learn more about the things that you focus on or you know, potentially reach out to you with a question or something? Uh, if you have a question, probably it's fastest to um, at me on Twitter, at Wired Ferret. Um, we, we have to figure out what, where does that come from? That's a, that's a unique name. <laughs> well, okay. I would like to say that in uh, 20, 2007, none of us realized we'd be using these for <laughs> our professional lives. I, I had ferrets and I was a little hyperactive. All right. Simple so, as that. Yeah. Very, very cool. You're not, uh, you're not doing any crazy uh, experimentation with them. No, Good. no, I'm not experimenting. No pets are harmed in, in the production of feature flags. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So we will, uh, we will get your Twitter handle in the, uh, in the show notes. You have a, a fantastic blog that has all of your, uh, your talks and so forth as videos. People can go watch them. Um, Heidi, thank you so much for the time today. We really enjoyed it. And uh, folks, uh, we hope you gained something from this as we always try and balance between throwing new technologies at you and then hopefully helping you uh, figure out how to get them implemented or, you know, getting your teams to rally around some of these things. So for Heidi, thank you so much for, for the time today. I want to thank both DigitalOcean and Pricing Wire for sponsoring today's show. It's easy to learn more about Pricing Wire and book a strategy session at pricingwire.com. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. We want to thank everybody for listening every week. We want to thank everybody for telling a friend, for rating the show and sharing it on iTunes and all the other places. And with that, we're going to wrap it up and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 